0: Tanya Fitzpatrick.
1: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick and this is World Footprints.
0: The first step is is for people to really
2: understand how the system works and how it's working against us. I think we're frustrated because we can't make the changes that literally most Americans want. So if you look at things like police brutality, if you look at polling, 80 to 90% of Americans want the chokehold, like the one that was used to kill George Floyd, to be banned. 80 to 90 percent want an end to racial profiling, and yet we can't seem to get these laws passed. You know, what I'm hoping to offer is a way to look at some of these problems and step back and say, okay, Why is the will of the people not being implemented in our government? Well, it's these small, seemingly small flaws that are standing in our way. We need to find a way and make the change so our voices and what we actually want to happen in this country can be heard.
1: That's Elizabeth Rush, a prolific writer whose newest book, You Call This Democracy, calls on Americans to re-envision what a democracy that truly represents the people might look like. Influenced by her travels abroad, Elizabeth took time to talk to the people in countries where she's lived temporarily, to reflect upon the state of American democracy and how ordinary people could bring about the changes to make the USA a more perfect union.
0: An award-winning author of more than 20 books, some of which have received rave reviews from Publishers Weekly and the School Library Journal. Elizabeth has written more than 100 articles for publications such as The New York Times, Smithsonian, and Harper's, just to name a few. What I like about Elizabeth is that she has combined her passion for writing, her family, along with her love for travel and cultural immersion to live a passionate, fun-filled life. In living life to its fullest, she has also discovered a platform as a speaker and commentator, discussing everything from writing, teen activism, science heroes, and the state of our democracy. With everything going on in the country and around the world, Elizabeth's insights are as prescient as they are timely.
1: Here's our conversation with Elizabeth Rush, who joins us from Portland, Oregon.
0: Elizabeth Rush, thank you so much for joining World Footprints today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Oh, bless you. Now, before we get into talk about your books and travels and what have you, you're in Portland, Oregon right now. How are you doing? How are things in Portland?
2: Well, they are probably better than you might expect, given the news. Portland is not burning down. It is mostly fine. Most of the protests that are happening are quite peaceful. There are small groups of people who are partaking in violent behavior. And the reaction of the police can be quite can be more than it should be. (laughs) So that part is scary. But generally, Portland is doing a really good job with the pandemic, people wearing their masks and being careful. So I'm really proud of that. And I'm also proud of people hitting the streets and um, making their voices heard about what they care about. So it's better than national news would would
0: lead you to think. Of course it is.
1: (laughs) We're and in it's a beautiful inter-
0: sunny day so.
1: yes same here for a chance uh, now these are interesting times uh, here in America and your book you call this democracy is pretty timely talk to us about the book and these times and what sorts of things you want the reader to possibly take from this book
0: and and why now yeah well that's a lot of questions all at once <laughs> Take them one at a time. one <laughs> should I do
2: first. <laughs> so You Call This Democracy is really designed to help citizens identify and fix flaws in our democracy and make changes so that we can finally make progress on all the problems that we face. I think that a lot of people in the United States are doubting their government are feeling frustrated by their government and by elections and i i share that frustration and i share that sympathy my mission is really to highlight ways that we can improve our democracy so that it so that it really better reflects the will of the people. So there are flaws such as the fact that we don't get to elect our president, the fact that uh, party leaders are basically drawing voting district maps, the fact that unlike in many countries around the world, we require citizens to register to vote and actually put up that barrier and that hurdle as well as some other barriers and hurdles so we don't do a good enough job with our democracy in in making it easy for people to participate and really have their voice heard rather we kind of put up obstacles and there are several ways in which everyone's voice is not heard equally Um, and there are some really simple solutions to these problems and i really believe that once we implement these solutions We'll be able to start to take on some of the issues that we're facing with the economy, with healthcare, with the climate change, with police brutality. And so I'm really hoping that my book is a roadmap for change and a way for citizens to really work to make our democracy work for us.
0: I want to um, just clarify something you said a little bit earlier when you uh, mentioned that we don't get to elect our president. You were actually making a distinguished point between the popular vote and electoral college vote. Yes, that's right. So the
2: United States is literally the only presidential democracy in the world where your vote doesn't get counted up, you know, in a total to elect a president. And the electoral college has really... Kind of skewed the way our presidential elections work. Instead of uh, candidates caring about what people think all across the country, they really focus on battleground states. Uh, This year in 2020, there are about six battleground states. And that really distorts what the candidates are focused on. Most of the time, the candidates will spend most of their time and energy and listening to people in those states and leaving the rest of us in 44 states to be mere spectators. And it doesn't have to be that way. Well, you can't actually get rid of the electoral college, because it's in our constitution. But there's a very clever way that states can dedicate their electors to the winner of the popular vote. So there is a way to, to make that change. And it's already happening.
1: As you were writing this book, obviously, you, you guard some insights about all of these issues and problems, but you also work too on Capitol Hill, having worked uh, at uh, the U.S. Senate, and so you've got both the insider perspective of Washington, where people come to push policies, to push legislation through, and then you're out there in Portland, where we we see protests taking place, and so. Bringing those things together ultimately or bringing about the changes is really going to require legislators to do things, whether it's at the state level, national level, or local level. How do you see where we are right now and even your book helping to inform this civic space to really get people to understand how to transfer some of this anger and frustration with the system into policies that ultimately change?
2: Yeah, I think that's such a good question, such a wise question. I think that um, the first step is, is for people to really understand how the system works and how it's working against us. I think we're frustrated because we can't make the changes that literally most Americans want. So if you look at things like police brutality If you look at polling, 80 to 90% of Americans want the chokehold, like the one that was used to kill George Floyd, to be banned. 80 to 90% want an end to racial profiling, and yet we can't seem to get these laws passed. You know, what I'm hoping to offer is a way to look at some of these problems and step back and say, okay... Why is the will of the people not being implemented in our government? Well, it's these small, seemingly small flaws that are standing in our way. We need to find a way and make the change so our voices and what we actually want to happen in this country can be heard. I think just raising awareness that things like the Electoral College and gerrymandering and voter registration and uh, vote by mail, that these are that things we should be paying attention to, it can be really hard when there's so much else going on in the world to kind of step back and say, well, why is this happening? Why does our democracy seem to be so ineffective, which really feeds the anger that we see? So my job, I really think, is to show clearly what the flaws are that we face and offer solutions. And in my book, I give very specific examples and very specific resources on what an ordinary citizen can do to make change. And I also have some wonderful stories about, about um, citizens who are already working for change and winning, change that's already, going ac- that's already spreading across the country, which is so inspiring.
1: This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences travel deeper by visiting our website worldfootprints.com and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers
0: one of the things i found very interesting is that whilst you were writing this book you were actually traveling internationally and i know some of your travels actually informed this book about american democracy how (laughs) and where since about 2012, my family and
2: I have been doing home exchanges with families all around the country and around the world. It's a different way of traveling. It's a way that you're not going to hotels and you're not necessarily in the big tourist places. Some of the places we traveled to, like we stayed in this little village called Inns in Switzerland, which is outside of Bern. It's literally not where any tourist would go. But we were in the neighborhood, we were in someone's house, they were in our house. And with that kind of travel, you um, you have a chance to talk to neighbors, you're invited to to barbecues. Like in that particular instance, we were walking around and we wandered into the park and there was a Shakespeare in the park that was happening in Swiss German. And we sort of just joined them and listened and, and, and began to have conversations. And those conversations that you have with real people give you a perspective that you can't get when you're just in your own country. I think that without travel, I would I would probably have the perception that our democracy is Perfect. And it's the way everybody else does it. And if there are small flaws, it's really not a big deal. But when when I spent time talking to other people in other countries and understanding that um, things are handled quite differently, that there aren't any other democracies where citizens are required to register and show a very specific ID that's difficult to get. When I talk to people about that, they're like, well, that's crazy. You know, either they can show up and show a phone bill or the government automatically registers them. So it just gave me a different perspective and gave me some reason to look closer at our democracy.
0: Were there things that you saw that you thought might be quite effective for us here? I think there's some
2: basic things that we need to do. I mean, I think we need to um to elect our president with a popular vote. Um, and that happens everywhere, every other democracy, um, presidential democracy in the world. Um, I think that we need to get rid of this obstacle that we put up requiring people to take an extra step to register to vote. There are 50 million eligible voters in this country who who are not registered, and that is that's a huge percentage of our population who's 15 or 50? 50, 50 million. 50 million people are not registered to vote. So that's a huge, that's a gigantic part of our population that is there, you know, and the, the research on this shows that when people are asked why they don't vote, the most common answer is that they're not registered. So this simple change of having our government automatically register and keep people's registration updated would be a giant step forward to having our voices heard and having our government really reflect the will of the people. So, But if you don't travel and you don't see that what we're doing is so different from what's happening in other democracies, you may not have that same feeling that, wow, this is it's kind of a small change, but it could have huge repercussions and huge impact and really give us a way
1: forward. Mm. Mm. Now, you touched on the home exchanges that you've done, and I know from our research that you've actually used these to help write some books along the way. Talk to us about some of those experiences and particularly how they helped you to write.
2: One of the things that I, I love to do more than anything is to kind of pair my passion for travel and my passion for spending time with my family with my work of writing for both young people and adults. And I have several books that the Home Exchange actually enabled me to do research for a book. So one of them is a book called A Search for the Northern Lights. So this is a book that I co-wrote with my teenager Izzy when she was homeschooling for a year. For this book, we actually did, it's not exactly a home exchange, we were hosted through home exchange by a family um, in a town outside Reykjavik. And what was so amazing about that is that we were staying in their house with them and their children, cooking meals with them um, and then they were so excited about the book research that we were doing that they also you know stayed up late at night and took us out on walks to look for the northern lights and drove us around to dark places to to see the northern lights the funny story about about that is that actually when we were in Iceland which is one of the best places to see the northern lights there was a huge blizzard we didn't see much, we ended up seeing sort of just one green glow. But that ended up being part of the story that we wrote in this book, which is that we traveled to all these different places searching. And then when we ended up seeing them was in a place not far from Portland, Uh, we got an alert and drove to the darkest place we could get to. And we ended up seeing our best Northern Lights right
0: there. Um, (laughs) I was going (laughs) to ask you about that, because all the times that we've been to Iceland, the Northern light, it's eluded us. Um, oh yeah, I know, right? I thought it was a slam dunk that we were gonna see <laughs> the Northern Lights in Iceland. And I did too.
2: Yeah, I it turns too. out that the um the best part about it was spending time with the family. And yeah. what was interesting is that really affected the way we wrote that book because it is about the northern lights, but it's also about what happens when you're on a quest and when you're you're searching for something but you also need to be aware of everything else that's happening and enjoy like you know what we did during the daytime and the relationships that we built and so the book also reflects that it reflects a little bit it's a a kind of a broader story that I may not have had if we hadn't traveled in that particular way. Another, are you
0: interested in, in more examples? Yeah, there's one in particular I'm very interested in. So let's see. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought. <laughs> we did a home
2: exchange. The one that I mentioned earlier, the one I mentioned earlier in Switzerland um, was also, we also did a car exchange. So when we were staying in their house in Switzerland, we took the car and drove to Florence, Italy, because I was doing research for a book on Bartolomeo Cristofori, who is the inventor of the piano. And he worked in um, in Florence, Italy in 1700. And so what I did is I researched everything I could about his life, and I created kind of a walking tour, uh, walking through the, the streets of Florence with my family. And we uh, went to the street via Neri, where he had his home, where he lived and he had his workshop. We went to where. The uh, Medici workshops were, we traveled to Pratolino, which was um, one of the locations, the kind of summer retreat for the Medici family, where Cristofori would be responsible for moving instruments, for musical performances there. And I even, I contacted an instrument maker, her name's Kirsten Schwartz, and she makes Cristofori replicas. And so I met her, she took me behind the velvet uh, rope, um, in a gallery in Florence and showed me this Cristofori replica, so a replica of one of the very first pianos ever made. And she took it apart, she showed me the, um, the mechanisms, she played it for me, and then on top of that, uh, she took me back to her home in the hills of Tuscany, where she showed me her workshop, she let me use the tools, that were very similar to what Christofori would have used. He showed me the materials. That experience just imbued the story with a real sense of Florence, a sense of place, a sense of the invention process that Christofori went through when inventing the piano. And one of the best parts about it is I got to share that with my family and my children. At one point, I was in the workshop Kirsten was showing me something and I heard this sound and my son Kobe plays the piano and uh, Kirsten's husband uh, makes harpsichords and so Mm -hmm. Kobe was in the other room playing like Coldplay on a harpsichord which sounded so cool so sort of modern and historic while I'm learning about how Pianos are made and how the mechanisms work. I hope that that kind of excitement comes across in the book, which is called The Music of Life.
0: I, mean, I was laughing because how do you take a cold play song and make that work on a harpsichord? <laughs> I know. A lot of skill, a lot of skill your kid had. That's right. Here's more of our conversation with author, writer, and speaker Elizabeth Rush as we discuss her newest book, You Call This Democracy? And her thoughts on the power of immersive travel. What was it like for you? I mean, how, really, to to walk the streets of history, to walk in the footsteps of Cristofori with your family. I mean, how how did that impact you?
2: Well, so for instance, we knew that Cristofori's workshop was on Via Neri, but we didn't know the exact address. So. We walked up and down that street and we looked at the doors and we looked at the windows and we talked about which one do you think was his workshop? What do you think it was like? What would the sounds have been like? We looked at the cobblestone streets and thought about what it might be like when horses were going by or carts or carriages. Being able to um, share that uh, with my family and have those discussions really helped me immerse into the story Sound became a very important part of telling a story, kind of capturing the sounds of Florence at the time. So when we were there, the bells were ringing constantly from all the different churches. And I did some research and that was true in the case. That was also the case in 1700. And so, you know, something that I enjoyed with my kids were listening to the bells and then that ended up in the book as well.
1: Ah, lovely. So when you're traveling, does that heighten your creative process, your creative antennae in a way that wouldn't be otherwise?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's actually one of my favorite things about being a writer is that it does, it opens up the world to me. And the way that I can kind of merge my work with my love of travel. I'm going to give you another example of a book this one's called impact asteroids and the science of saving the world and this one was made possible by a home exchange that uh that it was just me actually hosted in a house in Arizona and what it allowed me to do I was there for two weeks it allowed me to visit with Dolores Hill who is a scientist at the University of Arizona and go into her laboratory and see the work that she did. It allowed me to meet Robert Ward, who was a meteorite hunter. He had just gotten back from an international trip searching for meteorites. And he met me near his home in a coffee shop and showed me, like opened his bag and pulled out these rocks and showed me. I got to go to Meteor Crater with geologist David Kring and we hiked around it and hiked into the crater and learned about how, when space rocks hit Earth, what happens and how he learns that story by going into the actual crater and looking at the rocks. It allowed me to go up to Mount Lemmon, where I spent several nights with Eric Christensen, who was searching for asteroids that have never been found before and staying up all night with him, looking at what the telescope had found and actually finding asteroids that had never been found before. So um, those experiences are so exciting to me personally. I love that sense of discovery. I love traveling. And I think it feeds both my work, but it also really feeds my soul.
0: Well, speaking of which, before we we go, there's two rapid fire questions that I want to ask you. But before that, you have written what 20, 30 books and there's a couple that I didn't get a chance to talk to you about and so you have to come back again and <laughs> uh, in, in, in talk about uh, these particular books. One uh, in particular uh, about the sister of Mozart. So, oh yeah, uh, we we will have you back. But with all of your travels, with all the traveling that you've done, is there a country that you've identified as what I call your soul country, kind of like your second home or a country that gosh, this feels like home to you. Yeah. Um that's
2: a challenging question. You know, my answer might be surprising. It's a country that we we were able to spend six weeks in Ecuador. We stayed in this was a home exchange and we were in a in a house in the village in this small town called San Pablo de Lago. I'm outside of Octavalo. I feel like that experience awoke a different spirit in me, one that I wouldn't have had if I had just stayed in the United States. I had experiences there, like hanging up the laundry, you know, in the backyard where we were staying. And the wall near that house was next to the cemetery. And we would hear the singing um, during the funerals mm-hmm. and we shopped in the markets um, with people. We played pickup soccer with people in town. We traveled, we didn't have a car. So we traveled on the bus with people to places all around the village. And I think because it was such an immersive experience, I had time to really become me there and so Mm. while in some ways it was really quite different and quite foreign experience from what i'm used to i feel like it's soaked into my bones and into my soul in a way that that maybe other countries haven't and so that's a place that i would would love to return to um, and will always have um, a special place in my heart
0: wow what and the last question is if you could sit next to anybody on a long-haul flight, past or present, who might that be and why? Because we've been talking so much about writing, I the
2: first name that comes to mind is John McPhee, who is a writer of nonfiction for adults. I really admire his work because he delves so deeply into a subject matter, and he also takes a really interesting approach to structure. Like, he wants to structure his writing so that the structure kind of informs the topic. For instance, I kind of tried to imitate that with the book that you mentioned, the book about Maria Mozart. She played piano sonatas, and so I was inspired by his work to structure that whole book around the parts of a piano sonata. And so why I would love to sit next to him in, um, in the airplane is just to talk about his process, how he gets inspiration for structure, how he does his research. His work is so rich with detail, you know, how he does his research, how he organizes the information and their creative part of creating that structure. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be you know, a, a wonderful little master's degree in writing um, <laughs> that I would really enjoy.
0: Huh. masterclass 38,000 feet in the air. That's right. <laughs> oh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today and again, we look forward to having you back uh, to talk about many of your other books. I would love that. Thank you so much
2: for your your wonderful
0: work. What I found very interesting about this conversation with Elizabeth is how much insight she gained into America's democracy from abroad. And I think the holes, the gaps she found comparing U.S. democracy with other countries was very, very telling.
1: And even in this time where we're not able to travel, it helps us to appreciate the power of travel. Because just as you said, dear... The insights that she got from being elsewhere and having that time to reflect upon what's right, what's not right with American democracy came from being abroad. And so that speaks to just how important it is to have those cross-cultural experiences, to look reflectively at perhaps your own home and see those things where improvements can be made.
0: And speaking of home, I loved her home exchange experiences. And we're actually going to do another interview with Elizabeth uh, specifically about her home exchange experiences. So we'll be elaborating more on the conversation we had with her during this interview. In closing, we spent some time with Elizabeth discussing immersive travel and how it can change you. And the following anonymous quote is just a reminder of travel's transformative power. Travel is more than the scene of sights. It is a change that goes on deep and permanent in the ideas of living. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're so honored that you chose to take this adventure with us and giving us the privilege of your time. Thank you for spending this time with us and allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.